Crossfade. The Daily Talk Show. A conversation sometimes worth recording with Josh Jansen and Tommy Jack. The Daily Talk Show, live from New York City. This is our final episode in New York. Yeah, from the Big Smoke. This place is forever pumping. And uh, we've got another... Aussie joining us today. Chief Pumper. <laughs> I don't know if I'll take that <laughs> That could be taken wrongly. Uh, Eddie Buckingham. Hello, gents. Very happy to be here. Mate, thank you so much for coming on. This is, I love... Well, you guys did the hard work. You've come all the way to New York. You're here in Chinatown, my neighbourhood. Mate, and, <laughs> and, we can and you gave us some amazing hospitality at your bar that you have here in Chinatown. Yeah, thank you for coming through. Mate, uh, um, our mutual friend, Benny Squires... Very I good was man. training with him at the gym, <laughs> and I told him that I was coming over here. I missed Jim uh, that day. Yeah, and and the other three <laughs> and months. So Ben before was pushing it. massive stacks. I know because yes, I worked out was. with him before. So and that's good to hear. Nothing's changed. I asked him who should we get on in New York City, and he said, "My mate Eddie, he's your man." Fantastic. He's the chief pumper. <laughs> <laughs> that, he definitely didn't say no, that. That. That, was Benny. that was Benny that day. He was pumping some iron. Yeah. Can you, Eddie, can you explain, where, where are we in, in New York City? Uh, so right now it's late on a Wednesday night. What is it? It's about uh, just after 9 p.m. We're down in Chinatown, which mm-hmm. for those, anybody uh, who knows Manhattan geography, it's uh, kind of in the heart of downtown Manhattan. But it's a really unusual and special neighbourhood. Um, you guys have been here the last few days, and I know you've seen a lot of the city. But like Manhattan is such a dynamic and and vital place with so much going on. But Chinatown exists, although it's smack bang in the heart of of the lower portion of the island. It's a little bit different to the rest. Um, it's it's really a true Chinatown, developed kind of mid nineteenth century, and and for a long time it was kind of caught in time. Um, as the rest of the city gentrified and developed and changed, it it was stuck in its own little time warp for a long time. And what that means is it's created this remarkable and unique neighbourhood. Um, we're really close to uh, you know the financial district, mm. uh, side of the world, former World Trade Centre, and what Tribeca just to the to the west, Lower East Side and Soho above us and to the east. But so it's a little pocket. It's only about the official old school Chinatown is only about eight blocks by six blocks. Yeah. So it's tiny. Um, I'm trying to think of an Australian equivalency. You know, it'd be smaller than than uh, about the size of a mid-sized park in Australia. Yeah, wow. But uh, but you have tens of thousands of people who live here, and in the last few years it's undergone a bit of a change. So for a long time it was really dominated by by Chinese migration. Um, but probably in the last 10, 15 years, the bulk of new migrants to the East Coast aren't actually settling here in Chinatown. Mm. They're going out to the outer boroughs, areas like Flushing, you might have heard of, downtown Brooklyn. Um, and so Chinatown, a long way behind the other neighbourhoods, is starting to have this a bit of an evolution and mm. undergoing some pretty interesting change. Um, I personally live in this neighbourhood. Uh, I've been in New York nine years now and I've lived in a bunch of different neighbourhoods downtown. But this was one that I think growing up Australian as well, you know, we have such great Chinatowns in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, this one really caught my imagination and it's a bit unlike anywhere else. It's a very special place. Mate, I tell you what, I felt like I was on a bus tour in New York with the best bus guide <laughs> yeah, this giving was us legit. the yeah, exactly. I don't need to come back. Some history, some geography. <laughs> um, you launched Chinese Tuxedo with your business partner in 2016? Yes, yes. So I, uh, I you guys were just there. I have a restaurant um, which we opened a couple of years ago in the heart of old Chinatown on a street called Doyers Street. I'm just going to say... I had a heart attack 
because I was out the front waiting for you and Post Malone was there. <laughs> and Tommy was very... I didn't know who Post Malone is because I'm the uh, official dork of the, the show. But Tommy lost his mind. Man. And can I say, for the first time, pulled out his phone for a selfie. Wow. I never... I never Be cool, man. Be cool. I never Don't embarrass do that. me in front of my friend Post. <laughs> if you were there, I wouldn't have. Is Post his first name? Um, no, he got, it, he got his name. I don't know his real name, but he punched his name into a uh, random oh, hip hop right. name generator online. <laughs> yeah. And it came up with Post Malone, and it was like, can't do better than that. We need to actually get on our Reddit, we'll put that generator. Because yes, I, I want to know what my rap name would be. <laughs> we, we know yours is going to be Cheap Pumper. <laughs> but we don't. No, so 2016, you rock up. So a couple of years ago, well, it was actually a long way before 2016. I first. Uh, uh, kind of said yeah we're going to do this back in 2014 and it took nearly two and a half years to bring to life so what had happened is um i opened a bar in midtown years ago 2011 um, and my background was more in bars uh, nightclubs music venues and the like um, and I operated that bar for a few years and then I wanted to do something a bit different and, and pivot a little bit. Um, and the general contractor who built my bar in Midtown was Chinese American. He migrated, actually he migrated to Chinatown back in the 70s from Fuzhou in southern China. And he and I, I've really missed the great Chinese food that we were spoiled with, that we're spoiled with in Australia. And so, because I hadn't found anywhere that I really liked. And so I spoke to Jeff and I was like, can you take me to some of the places that you like to go to and I can see, you know, some places maybe I wouldn't have accessed myself. And so we got into a bit of a ritual of just hitting everything from like the dim sum places for, for lunch to the Cantonese places for dinner. Um, and there are some great restaurants here, but they're not, I, I think, typically not really of the standard of some of the great restaurants that you get in Sydney and Melbourne, Hong Kong, Singapore, more broadly, Shanghai. And we were out to, we were actually having lunch at a dim sum place just around the corner from where we are now. It's called Golden Unicorn, which I wish I had thought of that name first. It's my favorite name for a restaurant ever. Um, and we're having lunch at Golden Unicorn, which is, it's what they call dim sum here we call yum cha back in mm -hmm. Australia. Okay. And so we're basically having yum cha, picking, you know, dumplings off the carts and the like. And I said, you know, it's a shame that Chinatown doesn't have a restaurant that can stand up with, you know, the great, French restaurants or the great Italian restaurants in this city, the great contemporary American, because uh, this is an amazing food town. But Chinese to New Yorkers was really that kind of cheap and cheerful, you know, Sunday night takeout noodle box kind of vibe, which don't get me wrong, I love. Mm. It can be, a good example of that is, is awesome. But the, like, it wasn't beautiful dining rooms with top flight service and interesting, you know, crowds and the like. So, uh, so over lunch in 2014, Jeff and I were like, well, let, let's, why don't we do it? We'll, we'll, we'll do it and uh, so that was kind of how it was born um, now it was a great idea over lunch two and a half years later <laughs> we actually finally opened the doors to it so we had some challenges and false starts but but the thing that made the project had such a long gestation period was the space that we found so uh, it was originally a theatre it was an opera house so it was the it was the Chinatown Opera House, the first Chinese language theatre on the east coast of the USA, uh, built in the in the middle 18th century. But over the years, it had lots of different uh, uses. So when we took it, 
was like a small mall, a bunch of different suites. There's like a fashion boutique at the front, then like a travel agent, an acupuncture's office, an accountant, stuff like that. There was an illegal mahjong room at the back. Um, <laughs> but it was a really narrow corridors, really low ceilings. The room now has this big scale because we basically demoed and took everything out. Yeah. Um, and that was a really exciting couple of weeks as we're doing the demo and we're discovering things, you know, that have been covered up for over a hundred years and things like uncovering the decorative columns from the mid 19th century, the original wall details and stuff. So as we doing the demo and bringing it down, we were like, well, this, we can't do any better than this. So we tried to retain as many of those historical elements as possible. Um, so that's really part of what makes the magic of the restaurant, but it also meant it was two years to build, which was a long two years. Oh, that would do my head in. Well, fit out, fit out seemed to be, I mean, I did like a tiny fit out of an office and it was literally, when I say fit out, we, we painted a room <laughs> and it was- oh, So a, we're speaking a, the same a, language. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And it was, it was enough to drive me crazy. What, and we also had yeah, to figure out a system to feed 300 people a night as well. Exactly. So. <laughs> Just, I can't even grasp what that takes. Like, what do you start with on a fit out like that? Like, what's the first like thing that you demolish? How do you uh, approach it? Well, 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 I'm lucky. As I mentioned, Jeff, my business partner, is a very experienced, very capable general contractor. So I don't, I, I don't want to give myself too much or any credit on this matter. He, he made some real magic did happen. Did you pick up a sledgehammer? But, uh, oh, of course I did. Mate, of you did, I did a lot. <laughs> that, that, that's the best part, though. Yeah. Yeah. Got the Insta story and then just put it down and head you know, I'm embarrassed. We're laughing, but that, that literally happened. I can show you the photo. This is before stories. This is way back in the day. Um, I can show you the it's post, worth the post though. yeah. Um, but so uh, uh, so we, we, we draw up plans, so, so obviously we need to file everything with the Department of Buildings, so, so I sit down with the drafts person who, who does it all in AutoCAD, um, and at that stage it's a bit of a theoretical exercise, like you, you have a vision or a plan or whatnot, but, but it's a long evolution from there. Um, Jeff and I design the spaces we do ourselves. We don't use a design firm. So we don't use, we don't have like fully realized renders and everything, um, which uh, means it's an exercise in trial and error to a degree, but, but it, it kind of, it's an evolution. It comes to life over time. Um, and I love that process. It's yeah, a really yeah. exciting process. Do you like, I always think about five year plans or thinking, projecting in the restaurant business, that's hard to do because if you don't get people you just in the hope door, you're still open in five years. Time. Oh yeah. Well, if you don't get people in the door, you're not getting paid. Yeah. yeah. So how do you approach that? Well, it's it's definitely a week to week proposition for us. Um, we just do a dinner service. We we don't do lunch um, because, like our neighbourhood and the size of our dining room, we feel a lunch service wouldn't really work. And fasting anyway. Who eats lunch now? Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but so we're only closed. What is it? three, four days a year. We're open 361 days a year. We close on New Year's Day, Thanksgiving over here, 4th of July, and then Labor Day, which is another holiday over here. I earmark that day for my annual kind of team outing. Mm. I do something with the team every year. So so that's why we close then. But we're open on Christmas. We're open through all the other kind of holidays of the year. And it's in part because you, you have to. Um, you know, the rent doesn't change every month. The payroll still has to run every week. 
And so you're really only as good as your last dinner service in some yeah. ways. Um, obviously, you come to market with working capital and you know, you're operating income in time, should get stronger and you get a bit more comfortable. Life's a lot better now going into year three than you know, that first year. It's a little mm. bit less stress inducing and we were lucky you know we, we had some wins um a great new york times review early uh soon after our open uh things like that help we've been well reviewed and we're busy which is great but you know there's seasonality to it um yeah. our restaurant is in a basement with no windows so so in the fall like right now or in the in the winter uh things are super strong but in the summer here it doesn't get dark till like 9 p.m 9 30 wow. in the summertime and people want to be in the rooftops in the outdoor cafes and garden restaurants and the like rather than in a basement so you have to manage your payroll your purchasing your inventory all in mind to that mm. but that's why they call it work you know that's why it's a job <laughs> you mentioned payroll i feel like you're in the perfect position to explain to us as australians tipping oh, yeah, and good. What, like, what's the, what's the deal? Is it something that should be embraced in the sense of like, we know that we have to do it, but yeah. do you think, is oh, well, it, in is the it states good? You have to. Yeah, you have to do you, it. You have to. And I can't stress other, this enough. Otherwise you're an arsehole. If, if, if you come to the US or if you're dining in the US, mm -hmm. consider the tip as part of your bottom line expense. Yeah. You know, if you're buying a $100 dinner, it's 120 and if you can't afford the $120, you can't afford the $100 dinner. Yeah. That needs to be the mindset. Yeah. Well, this is what um, I'm confused about because in a, in a, I get now, that. Now, now I, I, I will say this yeah. though, it's a damn shame because it is a broken labour model here yeah. in the United States mm. and it's difficult as a small business operator. I would love if it wasn't the case. It, it, it hurts my heart, the income disparity between my front of house and my back of house because by law, I'm not permitted to cut kitchen staff or non-client facing uh, staff into the tip pool. Um, if I do, I'm you know liable to a lawsuit. So a back of the house, so people in the kitchen are making less, are they? Or drastically less. Really? Drastically less. And, so and you can't pay them from the tips? So we pay above the award weight in every department at Tuxedo. Um, here, the minimum wage for... Uh, our tip staff members, that's our front of house staff members in New York right now, till the end of this year is $8. We pay $9 an hour, but we also have a tip pool across the board. And our front of house team do well, very well. Tip yeah, pool they, meaning if, if we give a tip to an individual, does that then go into a group pool that it, then is shared? It does, it okay. does. So, so uh, every restaurant is different. Some, some places, the server who directly services your table will take the entirety of the tip and discretionary tip out their support staff and the like. Um, that's a very old school model. But you'd find most of the quality restaurants opening in New York now, uh, there's a movement to do tip-included restaurants, tip-inclusive yep. restaurants, but, mm. the non but tipped restaurants would typically be in a tip pool. So, so everybody's tips go into one pot and then pending the number of hours that you worked and your role, that, hence your tip cut, you, you, you'll be tipped out based on that. Um, it's unnecessarily complex. Yeah. It's not equitable. Yeah. It's a constant thorn in my side yeah. because I've, I'm really lucky. I have an amazing team, a really, really good team, and I feel like we have a great culture. But everybody remembers the night that they feel the mm. tip pool broke bad for them. Yeah, you know, yeah. They remember the night where they had a big whale in who dropped a massive tip and they yeah. you know look at the paycheck at the end of the shift or the end of the week and it doesn't quite reflect that but nobody ever remembers the night when you did great yeah. <laughs> like when yeah. your colleagues kind of carried you yeah. 
So it's not such an issue for us because also our, we're a busy restaurant. Our guys are doing well. Yeah. Um, but then the the minimum wage here in New York at the moment for uh, non-tip dip staff, it's currently $13. It's going to $15 on the 1st of January. Um, you know, there's a huge disparity between what my front of house guys and what my back of house guys will make um, in those entry level positions. But uh, but like I said, by law, I, I'm not allowed to mess with the tip pool. Yeah. So we're three years in, into the third year yeah. of this business. And Second birthday's next month. Yeah. So it's coming. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you, it's a it's a Wednesday night. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is going. And you've been generous enough to give us your time. There would have been a point in this business, I could imagine, you are on the ground for hours and hours a day, do, just doing your craft. Because you're a mixologist, or you've you've worked as a. Uh, I've, I've, as I mentioned, I come from more of a, a, a booze background, more of a liquor background yeah. than a food background. So do I, but it has um, nothing to do with <laughs> a business model. So there's professional and personal interest. <laughs> yeah. As a mixologist, is that like calling us a video? Like I hate when people call me a videographer. It's, it's because it's you know like I do video production. I like yeah. to. I'm not quite a filmmaker because I don't have enough runs on the board to call myself <laughs> like. It, it feels like it's a bit Hollywood. But is a mixologist from a re, we talk Look, a lot about rebrands, personal yeah, rebrands. Yeah. What's that? What does that mean to you? Well, well that, there was that kind of culinary boom going back late nineties, early two thousands, and the rise and rise of the celebrity chef or the or the personality chef. And I think the mixologist tag was in some ways the booze world yeah. kind of glomming onto that, going yeah. where barman won't cut yeah. it, or bar person, bar man, bar woman. Um, uh, I want to, you know, elevate the title a little bit. Add some uh, fire. I, I'm, 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 I don't personally identify as a mixologist. <laughs> it was um, also followed like by to, to Justin Timberlake. <laughs> that was a so job. You, so yeah, you were JT's mixologist. That was a job. Yeah, I I told, for a couple of years. I told Josh years. this and there was some confusion. I thought a mixologist, I thought you were a DJ or something, right? <laughs> Justin Timberlake. That would be, be much, much cooler. How did, what happened with JT? How the hell does that happen? Um, yeah, so I worked with him for a couple of years. Actually, that period I was speaking to before when we were building Tuxedo, that was how I was paying my rent. I was spending all the money I had on the development and needed something to kind of keep body and soul together. So, um, yeah, as mentioned, I had, a, I had a bar previously in Manhattan and... You meet all kinds of people from all walks of life uh, in, in New York nightlife. And um, I was doing a little bit of work uh, with a liquor group, a big liquor company, Suntory Beam. So that's the, uh, it's now Japanese owned, but you know, who owned the whole Jim Beam portfolio, yeah. those sorts of things. And they'd been on me for a while. They said, do you want to come on board and help us with some of our recipes and some of, you know, maybe a brand ambassador spot or something like that? And while I own the liberty, I never really had the time to, to, to go in uh, and, and give it the attention it required. But after selling my stake in the liberty and developing Tuxedo, I just had a bit more bandwidth to do it. So I got more involved with those guys. And at about that time, uh, the Beam Group and Timberlake uh, uh, kind of had a, a co-branded tequila uh, called 901 Tequila. 901's the area code of Memphis, which is Justin's hometown. It was a tequila that he was developing um, out of Jalisco, Mexico. And, uh, you know, here in the States, every celebrity has a liquor brand yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I helped them with their cocktail recipe book and, and did a few events and the like uh, uh, with them. And, uh, and then met Justin. We did some events 
together out in LA initially, um, and he's a lovely guy, lovely guy. Like anybody who wants some like celebrity goss or muckrakers, I don't have any. The guy <laughs> is a massive talent. Like you just put a microphone in his hand and whether it's singing or just engaging an audience is an absolute yeah. natural. Um, and it's, actually, it's actually really annoying, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we did a conference in Vegas once and there's a crowd of about 3,000 people. And I'm not going to lie to you guys, I was nervous. Like, nervous as all hell. What's this is not what I do. What's the context of a mis- mixologist in a conference with Justin Timberlake? What is, can you paint the picture? Uh, I think I signed an NDA about all this. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> I just, I just realised now. Um, that's there's a fine. few thousand. It, there's a few thousand. Tell us the public there, there, there's, view of there's it. There's nothing uh, that, that that compelling or interesting. But, but so it's an internal kind of brand conference. Okay. Um, they bring all their salespeople and internal strategy people together and whatnot, and they'll speak to new major initiatives happening within the company. Um, 901 was a new brand. Obviously, they had you know a really exciting. Uh, uh, partnership in that not me I wasn't excited partnership it was definitely <laughs> Justin um, and so and so we were speaking to them um, me to speak about the product and, and the like and uh, and then Justin to kind of excite and enthuse the labour force for them um, so for me I'm a long way outside my comfort zone in yeah. a context like this and uh, and we're backstage and he comes up to me and he's like you're nervous, ain't you, buddy? Ain't you, buddy? I can't do an American accent. I've been here nine years. I should be able to, but I can't. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm not going to lie. I really am. And he's like, it's cool. Don't worry. I'm really good at this. And, like, and he's like, you are too. You are too. And I'm like, thanks, man. Did you have like a Madonna <laughs> mic on or something like that? Or just I did. Mic? Yeah, I did. I did. I had a head mic yeah. and he prefers a handheld. Okay. So he had a handheld. Um, and then after that, I only go do handhelds now. I think it's much cooler. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> just you got set up. <laughs> but, um, but so it was a fun gig. We went to some cool places. Um, Jimmy Fallon. Lots of golf courses. Did the Tonight Show, which, uh, which I was less nervous about, actually. Yeah. Having, done, having done those a few times with him, he said something. He was like, um, and it's, it's actually a principle I try to take into work now, where he was like, everybody out there is on your side. Best case scenario in this is for this to go great. Like, and and that's a good principle, you know. Mm. So, so often, I think, if we're harboring anxiety about something in our work life, or or anything for that matter, or just when there's a, uh, uh, you know, when we're presenting of ourselves to a group of people, invariably, ninety nine times in a hundred, yeah, there are haters out there and whatnot. But I think people want what's best for one another, and it's a great result, you know, for, to let people shine. Yeah. So I think about that in the context of other people doing things, mm. just get around them, support, pay it forward, you know, do what you can to help and support them to do cool stuff. And also in things I'm doing where I go, oh, this feels risky or is this a good idea or is this a bad one? Go, well, just have a crack, have a dip. Yeah. Tommy, this reminds me of what we are talking to Seth Godin about, the um, tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. As, as an Australian spending you know, the last nine plus years in the States, is tall poppy, is this just an imaginary thing that, we, that we've created? Do we need to move away from even talking about it, do you think? As, as an Aussie principle, you yeah. mean? Yeah. Or I, I think there is a bit of a tendency in Australia, and Australia there's an expectation to, to, to have a degree of humility, which I think is healthy to a degree, but at the same time, I think when people are doing cool shit, yeah. get around them. Yeah, well, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, 
I look at some instances with like Australian athletes and stuff and this culture of, you know, oh, it's a credit to the boys and, and all of that. I remember this is years ago, and this is going to be an obtuse Australian football reference. I remember Mark Lacroix, who yeah. played for the West Coast Eagles, he's a small forward, still yeah. plays for him, uh-huh. kicked 12 goals. Uh-huh. 12 goals for a small forward in contemporary football is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I hope some of you listeners find the footy haven't turned off the dial. And I remember, like, I went on AFL.com and I'm looking at it online, and I look at the post match interview, and the and the journalist who's interviewing him is like, well done, Mark, or whatever. And he goes, oh, it's a credit to the boys. No, mate, you just <laughs> dumped 12 goals. Nobody does that anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I was thinking to myself, an American athlete would have been like, I'm just that good. <laughs> I'm just that good. Yeah. And now, and I think I, I, that idea I would have rejected. So I've been here nine years, as I mentioned. I would have rejected previously. But now I'm kind of all about it. Yeah. Like, you go get what's yours. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, uh, something I've struggled with and advice I give to a lot of Australians who come over here is, like, if you're going into a job interview environment, you have to act as your greatest advocate mm-hmm. because nobody else will. Yeah. So if you walk into a job interview... It's not the time for false humility, yeah. whatever your field is. So in that context, mate, yeah. you're not a videographer, you're a filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly. the best filmmaker since Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. He's bloody good. <laughs> <laughs> well. And, um, and so, uh, uh, and look, like all things, there's a uh, healthy position somewhere in the middle probably. But, uh, but I think Australians can have a degree towards a socialised pressure for a false humility, which is a shame. Now, that doesn't mean you should stand on the treetop singing your own praises, and I think you can see through the bullshit pretty quickly. But but I like to, in my friends' community, people doing cool stuff, interesting stuff, I like to champion excellence. Mm. So in that weird anecdote I said I told about Mike LeCrave before, I tell him, mate, good on you, on your 12 goals, and it's nobody but you. You, You're the one who kicked them. Not nobody. <laughs> Did um, people get around you here when you were starting this? Uh, absolutely. The community, uh, particularly the Aussie community, uh, it's a really special group over here. I think there's a really... Because the fact of the matter is it's not easy. Um, and, you know, you're a long way from home. This is a wonderful city with a lot of opportunity, but it's a challenging one. It's a trying one. Everything from... Uh, uh, you know, it can be things like cost of living. Getting that first apartment is yeah. a punish. And there's <laughs> a lot of stuff. As a foreign national, their fixation with credit ratings and stuff here, you know, they don't make it easy for the outsiders coming in, which means anybody, no matter the context you're coming over here with, whether you've come over transferred with a job or you've come over looking one, chasing a dream, whatever your field is, you're doing that hard graft early. Um, and... and a lot of us, depending uh, depending on how long we've been here, like you can remember back to that hard graft, and you're still doing the graft. I've been here nine years, and there's still stuff you put up with. It's a long, cold winter, for instance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so when you're in that first one, when it gets to about April and it feel like feels like it's been you know freezing cold for six months, it's a it's a hard graft. So, um, I, uh, for me, my first couple of years, the support I got from new friends was very special and important in my kind of early period here and so when you see the young guys or young guys and girls not even that young necessarily arriving i like to get around them and support them mm. and uh and that culture has is is really uh established and, and propagates which is nice mm-hmm. 
business partnerships. Tommy and I are in the process of merging all of our stuff. We've had two separate businesses. We've done in, a big merger. We've done Congratulations. A, Thanks, a new company is called Big Media Company. Fantastic. Um, you know, to, to honour the fact that we're, we're merging two small yeah. companies yeah, together. Mate. Why not start big? That's a great <laughs> name. So, so I've always wanted to start a company called Global Megacorp. <laughs> just because I think that would be dope. I don't know what the company is yet. Yeah. Uh, I, I love domain names and we've got bigmediacompany.com and that was enough for us to, to get excited about it but what what advice can you give us you know like obviously we're in the honeymoon phase things are great we're laughing we're having a great time with eddie when's shit when's shit gonna hit the fan how can we prepare well i think the the ferocity with which the shit hits the fan depends on your own guys preparation Mm -hmm. a business partnership is like any and all relationships we always enter into them with the best intention. I've had a business relationship disintegrate, mm. a business partnership disintegrate, which was a difficult time. Yeah. And nobody goes into it going, well, I wonder how we'll do this when we go bankrupt. <laughs> like, yeah, nobody, yeah. And we didn't go bankrupt or anything, yeah. but, but, but you, 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 it, any business partnership, like any relationship, is started with a eternal optimism. To start, which is great, and that's necessary, and that's how cool stuff happens. Mm. So that's not a bad thing; it's just the reality of the matter. And what's important, I'd say, this kind of like a relationship, a romantic relationship, or a partnership, um, is the foundation you establish early, and its capacity for uh, communication, understanding one another, and so understanding one another's strengths, but probably more importantly, one another's weaknesses. And having a capacity and a space to talk through issues and challenges. So, so at the first sign of trial or tribulation, you know, somebody doesn't just throw a shit fit and throw their toys out of the pram or whatnot. Or maybe one partner does, and maybe that's their yeah. style. What's the difference but, between a shit fit and having the the, the conversation? What it, what's 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 a pr- productive way of doing it versus uh, a destructive way? Well, I'll say two things to this. Um, Jeff and I spoke a lot when we established about what our informing principles were. Mm. And it was very good. And we've written them down and we have them. And it's a great asset for us as individuals, as partners and for the business. Because it makes a lot of decisions much easier. You, You have myriad decisions that you have to make in the development of any business. And you can get almost like a decision fatigue in some ways. But if you have these informing principles that you can return to... Very often, nine times out of mm. ten, there's a simple solution there. And then so you can save your real creative bandwidth, mm. your real problem-solving skills for the stuff that really is a challenge. Yeah. So having an easy uh, like a thing to return system. to. Well, just a, just a why are we doing this? Because that can be easy to forget sometimes. And then another thing that Jeff and I, uh, and my team more broadly with my head chef Paul, my general manager Dan, uh, my events coordinator Laura, we've got a lot of talented people around us, um, but we just try and stay solution orientated. Things will come up, there will be challenges, but engaging in a blame game or dwelling on the problem. You know, we've had some crazy stuff. We've had a fire in the space. We had a sprinkler head freeze in the winter and then when it thawed, it blew out the sprinkler and flooded (laughs) our kitchen. Uh, And they're just like building issues. We had the the city uh, electrical grid. There was a fire under the street outside of our restaurant. There was an intake into our basement. It filled our basement and blacked out the restaurant on a Friday night. Like, stuff like this happens. Um, 
that's the beauty of you know working in a 200 year old neighborhood 100 year old electrical grid but um but staying solution orientated you know when when your sprinkler head is is pissing water and the place is flooding if you stand around going oh i'm getting wet this sucks you're not helping anything yeah. so so i think establishing understanding your informing principles and retaining a solution orientation is a really valuable thing. After the fact, after you've found your solutions, after you've worked through your challenges, you can sit around and have a beer and go, man, that sucks. That sucked, yeah. past tense. Yeah. Um, but, but when you're in it, it's, it's good if you're moving forward and, and keep that solution focused. I need focused. to start drinking more, I think. Or a seltzer, whatever, <laughs> soda water, whatever you like. And so do you think that it's, like, how productive is pinpointing the exact issues like how do you do you find that because i find that i need to say okay well if i'm going to bring a problem i need to be very specific and that can come across as pedantic and nitpicky yeah how, how do you balance you know when do you communicate versus when you're like actually this is a this is a personal insecurity that i have versus yeah. an issue that i need to address uh it's a fascinating question i think everybody's different in that regard and I think it speaks to uh, like a team structure. You want to, um, a, a team is best when it's an assortment of strengths and skill sets. <laughs> you know, a basketball team has point guards and power forwards. I don't know why I'm going to all the sports euphemisms. My like apologies, it. guys. Well, we're, we're, a big, we're a big sports podcast. So it's <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll do the scores after this. But, um, and so... So it's great if you can consider and partner with people with complementary skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because you want to at once be both micro and macro. So you're speaking about your specificity, mm-hmm. an amazing quality and strength, but it has to remain and exist within context. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't probably don't have your same yeah. attention to detail, that degree. I tend to be more macro in, in my thinking in some ways. But I have team members and teammates who hold me to account to ensure that, you know, we're executing on the detail as well. So that's letting go of my ego a little bit. I need to sometimes um, and go, okay, this isn't my... this isn't my strong suit. This isn't my strength. I need to surround myself with people who are better Mm -hmm. at this than me and trust, empower them and in turn trust them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. a roundabout answer. Yeah, I love it. Are you a big picture guy? Uh, you know, I, um, t- vision, big vision. Typically, I'm I'm the guy. I think I you know frustrate a lot of my team <laughs> where I go, I've got this great idea, we'll do it, and then I go, and then this is the, this is the next idea. And like we're yeah. still on this, working on this one. Um, but uh, yeah, I tend to be more of a macro perspective mm. perspective on things. But then there are some things where you have to get down in the weeds on it. You yeah. have to get in the detail. Um, but but yeah, naturally I would. T- characterize myself as more of a zoom out type. We spoke with um, Seth Godin today. My voice is really going isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> about personal brands and you know you being here as an Aussie you know thinking about how you're coming across what your brand is. Was it something at top of mind when you moved here? Look definitely not when I moved here. Um, I took a job here just because I really really love New York. I came here on vacation and uh, I was living in Sydney at the time and I went back to Sydney and uh, you know, different people have different places that they love and that speak to them. And I was really lucky that I think that I, that I found New York when I did, I was 26 years old and loved it. And so I was just, there was no thought to 
big picture, big plan. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big yeah. picture guy. This was not <laughs> this, none of this was scripted. Um, but and I think in some ways this idea of personal brand is a very 2018 thing to talk yeah. about. Um, I don't know. There, there are people who are better at this industry than I am who would attest that it's an imperative and everything. I try to stick to the formula, do good work, mm. and let the work speak for you. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's a perfect balance in some regards to that tall puppy syndrome that you're talking about, which is like, you know, pump yourself up when you need to, but also put your head down and actually have something to back up those words. Yeah. 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 No question. Um, and look, there might be some opportunities I've missed out on by, by not trying to fuel the the personal brand side of things and I think for you know food and bev is a creative industry and uh, the cult of personality around creatives is pretty powerful I think that applies more to the chefs Mm. in the field and the operators at the end of the day a really good operator if a good operator is doing a good job you shouldn't know who they are you don't (laughs) need to know their name yeah Yeah. you know uh, uh, and maybe if you pump up your profile it's a little easier to to get investment or, or things like that. But I, I think if you do good work, set a culture, set a tone with your team, then I suppose that's personal branding to a degree, but not the kind of thing that is fostered and formulated via yeah. Instagram. Or grow. Know, yeah, it doesn't come across gross. Yeah, 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 you don't wanna to be too, th- oh, well look, I, I say you don't wanna to be too thirsty with it, Go, be thirsty. Be as thirsty as you damn well like. It's 2018. We're all supposed to be super thirsty. The yeah. Kardashians are the most famous people in the world. You know, there's no shame in being thirsty. Yeah. But I'm 35 years old, so I'm not like, I'm a millennial just. Yeah. You're hydrated. <laughs> but, but I'm You're a little bit thirsty. Uh, uh, I'm, a little, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little thirsty. It all needs to be you know, a means to an end, really. Yeah. Um, and the truth is, I'm trying to use my phone less. <laughs> so things like the social media outreach and everything. It's not helping. I, I don't want to make that part of my job, yeah, yeah. you know. Eddie Buckingham, mate, you've got to go back to uh, what you do best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bill, Bill Clinton might be there. <laughs> exactly. The Daily, t- the daily Talk himself. Show. Uh, I think uh, people should definitely go in and check out what you're doing. What's one other place that you'd recommend other than your joint that people should go and go and see in New York City? Uh, a restaurant in yeah. New York. Um, if you're visiting and you're here for the first time or the tenth time for that matter, I think a fabulous spot that really speaks to uh, what's interesting and happening in New York food right now is a little spot called Estella on uh, Houston Street in, in Soho. Uh, small dining room, maybe about 40 seats, uh, contemporary kind of Spanish inflection, great head chef there. Uh, really thoughtful wine list beautiful spot awesome Awesome. thanks for the thoughtful chat it's the daily talk show hi at thedailytalkshow.com if you want to send us an email or go to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash the daily talk show have a good one